Welcome to Vision is More Than 2020, a podcast aimed at talking about your vision, your eyes, and how they play a role in overall visual and systemic function. Dr. Zolnicki and Lakowski, with the help of various guests, will work to help you understand more about your visual system and all the pieces to the vision puzzle. Hi, guys. Welcome to this week's episode of Vision is More Than 2020. We are going to be joined by a guest later in the episode, but before we have her join us, we just want to talk a little bit about our weekly insight, which is it is going to be Memorial Day this coming weekend. And I know here in the Northeast and pretty much everywhere, it really signifies uh, the start of summertime, but we do want to make sure to recognize what Memorial Day is all about, and that is to celebrate and commemorate all of the men and women who have died while serving in the military for the United States of America, keeping us safe. And we are forever indebted to all of those men and women. And although it is the kickoff of the summer, we really do want to highlight that this is actually why we celebrate Memorial Day and we appreciate all of our service members that have paid the ultimate price. So just think of that over this weekend while you are celebrating. Right. We wish everyone a very safe and happy Memorial Day. So for today's episode, we are going to be talking about computer vision syndrome in a virtual pandemic world. And to do so, we're being joined by our guest, Dr. Amico Vasquez. She knew she wanted to be an optometrist when she was in elementary school. After graduating high school in Fremont, California, Dr. Vasquez went on to earn her bachelor's degree with cum laude honors in sociology with a minor in biology at Loyola Marymount University in Los Angeles, California. While finishing her bachelor's degree, Dr. Vasquez was accepted as an early decision applicant to the Southern California College of Optometry at Marshall B. Ketchum University. While in optometry school, Dr. Vasquez was active in leadership, acting as the treasurer of the private practice club, president of her third year class, and president of the Beta Sigma Kappa Optometric Honor Society. She also pursued her passion for healthcare equality by volunteering at several community health clinics, including Care Harbor, Special Olympics, and Student Volunteer Optometric Services to Humanity. Dr. Vasquez has been honored to receive several awards, including the Council of Regents Achievement Award for Clinical Excellence, Dr. Geraldine J. Sherman Memorial Scholarship for Leadership, and the Vision Services Plan, and American Academy of Optometry Foundation Practice Excellence Scholarship. After completing her Doctor of Optometry with Summa Cum Laude Honors, Dr. Vasquez pursued a residency in vision therapy and neurorehabilitation in Austin, Texas at the Optometry Center for Vision Therapy. Currently, Dr. Vasquez provides both primary care and vision therapy services to patients in Santa Cruz, California and San Carlos, California. She serves as an adjunct assistant clinical professor at the State University of New York, mentoring fourth-year interns that rotate through the private practice she works at. She also serves as a coordinator for the Young Optometrist Group of the Santa Clara County Optometric Society. Outside of optometry, she enjoys working out, spending time with family, friends, and dogs, and trying new places to eat. Welcome to the podcast, Dr. Vasquez. Thank you so much for taking the time and joining us this morning. And to get started, tell us a little bit about yourself and your journey to finding optometry and then vision therapy. Hi, yeah, thanks for having me. Excited to be part of the podcast. Um, So I always knew I wanted to be optometrist. Um, I found a paper back when I was in third grade saying I wanted to be an eye doctor. And I think at that young age, I just remember my optometrist, I would go each year and I didn't really wear glasses till later on in life, but my mom and sister did. So we would go every year and it was very just conversational. He always knew like what family vacation we had gone on the year before, like what grade we were in. I just remember 
Um, he just remembered so much about my family. And I just love that we had that um, genuine connection with him. And then as I got older, I really gravitated toward the sciences and that became very interesting to me. So I was like, okay, optometry still seems like the right path. And then when I got into more high school, college, I was really interested in studying um, health inequalities and in access to healthcare um, and seeing how different neighborhoods and different affluent uh, people got more access to healthcare while others didn't and how that affected their health later on. So I definitely wanted to be part of that uh, primary eye care that could help these people find access to healthcare, um, which is why I love to do like outreach and going to like the Special Olympics or going to healthcare where they give free access to different glasses and eye um, care as well. And then in terms of vision therapy, when I actually went into school, I remember a lot of my friends were really interested in in pediatrics and vision therapy. And even though I loved working with kids, I was like, no way, like I don't see myself doing vision therapy or pediatrics at all. Um, it just wasn't for me. And then I remember going into my second or third year, we started taking the courses for strabismus and non-strabismic conditions. And I just thought it was so challenging and interesting how each case was so different. And each patient that came in, you had to really critically think your way through it. and then what really sealed the deal for me was when I rotated through the vision therapy clinic at our school and I got my first VT patient. I got to see her every single week and just seeing how much it improved her daily life. Like she was a college student and she just couldn't even study for more than like 30 minutes to an hour, um, getting to know her each week and becoming like friends with her just because you get to see your vision therapy patients so much more than you get to see your primary care patients. So you do really get to build that relationship with them, which I love. And then also just seeing how much of an impact you can make in their daily life and their ability to live their life without visual burden, I just thought was so amazing. I love that story. And I feel like vision therapy is such a, a unique and special branch of optometry for that reason that we really do get to know our patients and we're changed, you know, a pair of glasses can be life changing, right? Like you can really change somebody instantly with a pair of glasses, but when you get to really affect their visual function through therapy, it really is such a special thing to be a part of. And it, it's almost like addictive, right? Like you're like, I want to help as many people as I can, <laughs> uh, which is wonderful. So where the topic that we're going to be speaking about today is a little different than just your traditional vision therapy. And it, it really stemmed from a paper that you wrote. Um, and we really want to highlight today something called computer vision syndrome, right? We're in this pandemic with which has really caused a lot more digital device use across the board from young kids to elderly adults. Um, so tell us, describe to us what computer vision syndrome is and some signs and symptoms and how do we know if we have it or not? Okay, yeah. So um, computer vision syndrome is like a heterogeneous group of musculoskeletal, eye and vision related problems that's associated with the prolonged use of computers, tablets, cell phones and other digital screen devices. Um, common symptoms associated with it include eye strain, eye fatigue, headaches, neck pain, back pain, red eyes, dry eyes, and sometimes double vision even. Um, 
And it is really becoming a prevalent issue as the number of hours spent on screens increases. Um, even before the pandemic in like the year 2000, studies were showing that greater than 75% of all jobs involved computer usage. And the average American was spending about seven hours a day on the computer. And that was just for work. That didn't include looking at your personal cell phone or watching Netflix at the end of the day or whatever it was. So that time is probably even higher. Um, and then of course, with the pandemic, the overall time on screens increased because schools and businesses closed. So instead of going to a meeting with a bunch people you were taking that meeting on zoom um and then kids as well i think we're seeing more even in elementary school they're getting chromebooks and ipads to do their work on and using them not only in the classroom but at home as well to submit their homework so there's just an exponential increase in the amount of time that we're spending on screens yeah i i mean i think you really hit the nail on the head that screen time has really become so prevalent and it really pervades every part of our life because we're all using it and any facet for our work. Um, and then we also use it for our personal entertainment too, and how to connect socially as well. So a lot of us are guilty for being on screens for a, a large portion of the day. And it really can impact all these different parts of our visual system. So let's just kind of run through what common diagnoses do you usually see in your patients that are presenting with these symptoms of computer vision syndrome? Yeah, so computer vision syndrome, it's the result of um, ocular surface mechanisms, ergonomic and environmental factors that are specific to screens, um, accommodative mechanisms, so like our focusing system, and as well as ocular motor mechanisms, so like the muscles inside of our eyes. Um, so in terms of ocular surface, as we know with when we're using screens specifically, we tend to have a reduced blink rate anywhere from 20 to 60%, we blink less we kind of do these incomplete blinking. So instead of fully blinking where our lids cover the whole surface of our eye, we do these half blinks leaving the bottom portion of our eye without a tear film, which can lead to dryness and corneal exposure. Um, so that's the dry eye component associated with screens. And then in terms of ergonomic and environmental factors, with screens, tablets, computers, we tend to hold them a little bit lower, especially if our um, workstation is improperly set up. And this can lead to neck pain and back pain. And then also with screens, they do, they are different in ter terms of how they relate to like other near work because screens, they are formed by pixels and the way that they are backlit. And because the pixel, it is more pigmented in the center and then fades out, that can be an issue for people with really severe accommodative issues because their eye doesn't know where to focus. Are we focusing at the center of the pixel on the edges of the pixel? And that obviously gets worse with our screens that are not as good quality. And then um, in terms of our binocular vision, like I just mentioned, the accommodative insufficiency of being able to sustain focus with a near object. And then also patients with convergence insufficiency. We see a lot of that because screens and any near tasks require our eyes to be inward. And for someone whose eye posture is slightly outward, maintaining that posture throughout the day is gonna be a lot more difficult. Right. I, that's really interesting about the pixel. I wasn't aware of that little piece, but it makes so much sense the way you described it, right? The eye actually doesn't know where to focus and it's just kind of improperly focusing all over the, <laughs> the place. And that's going to give some discomfort um, yeah. if you're not good at it. Now, let's highlight all of the treatment options. So you talked about what the, the, the convergence insufficiency, accommodative insufficiency, the, the ocular surface um, issues. So what, how do you treat somebody in your chair that says, I'm struggling being on the computer for a long period of time? Kind of walk us through all of the treatment options for those patients. 
Right. So just like how it's multifactorial in cause, the treatment has to be multifactorial as well. So in terms of dry eye, um, I do like to start patients on like a conscious blinking, telling them, showing them what a half blink is, and then reminding them, okay, remember to fully blink, which I know is easier said than done. Um, so of course, palliative treatments such as artificial tears and omega-3 supplements, and in cases of my bovian gland dysfunction, adding like warm compresses. Um, and then convergence insufficiency, as we've known from like the CITT, and then another study called this uh, CINAPS, which looked at more adult patients. Um, they saw that anywhere from age nine to 32 with vision therapy, in-office vision therapy, that you saw increases in their near point of convergence and positive fusional ranges, which is the ability to move your eyes inward to compensate for that outward eye turn. And then obviously we do have basin prism for patients that need like more immediate relief. And then there's also new technologies like the neuro lens as well that is meant for um, more convergence insufficiency cases. And then in terms of accommodative insufficiency, plus lenses can be great for immediate relief, but then we have to be cautious because with patients with convergence insufficiency, that makes that condition worse. So making sure that we're maybe adding a little bit more base in PRISM if we're going to prescribe plus lenses. But again, vision therapy is a great tool for both of these conditions without having to be reliant on lenses. And I really like it. Obviously, I'm sure you guys too, because it really fixes the problem rather than kind of giving the patient a crutch and we're getting more at what the cause is than giving palliative treatments. And I think that vision therapy is a wonderful treatment option because you can really help improve those visual skills that are so needed for a patient to have to work efficiently on a screen and be more comfortable. Um, so you're really setting them up to be able to handle that screen time that they potentially need to do in their day, but do it more comfortably by improving the underlying function. Um, now, I think this conversation is so important because screens aren't really going anywhere. I think they're here to stay and they're a big part of our society and how we connect socially, how we relax on our own and entertain ourselves and how we work now. Um, so are there any ways that you recommend to your patients to set up their work and computer environment to be more comfortable? Any environmental changes they can make to make them feel more comfortable? Yeah, so OSHA has some really great recommendations on their website. They even have um, a little interactive part of their website where you can click on the different parts of the workstation. It'll tell you how to properly set it up. So they recommend that the monitor be positioned so that the center of the monitor is at 15 to 20 degrees below the horizontal eye level. Um, the monitor should also be about 50 to 100 centimeters away from the user when your back is properly positioned against the chair. And if you're using papers or other documents while you're on the computer, you should set them up at the same distance of the monitor um, so that you can easily move back and forth and make that saccadic movement very easily and also prop it up at the same angle as your computer. And then your keyboard should be at a height where the elbows are bent at approximately 90 degrees when typing. And then different patients obviously react differently to different lighting. So I tell them to play around with different light bulbs where you're, they're positioning the window. I think it's good to work in a room with the window so that we can let our focusing system go and our eyes relax using the 20-20-20 rule um, that we all love. Um, and I think it's really important for everyone to do this while they're at work as well, because um, when we have an improper working system or when our visual 
comfort is being taxed by being on the computer for a long time. Um, OSHA has come out with studies that says it does increase work errors and worker compensation costs when people are needing to take more frequent breaks or seek out care at their optometrist or their chiropractor. Um, so it's important not only for our health, but also for productivity. I love all of those tips. And I always, one that I always mention to patients that sometimes they forget is to make sure that your feet are on the ground, mm -hmm. right? We're all guilty of like sitting cross-legged, like comfy in our chair, but it really isn't a great posture to have. You really want to be conscientious of how your body is aligned. And so getting the feet on the ground or getting a chair uh, that has like that, that lip for your, your feet to be uh, on something, it's really important versus just dangling both. Dr. L and I are kind of short. So sometimes we struggle with this positioning, but it's also a really important piece. So what would you say um, for the doctors listening, what are one to two really important takeaways about computer vision syndrome that you want all doctors to consider? And then also for the people and patients that are listening that might be experiencing computer vision syndrome, what kind of tips do you have for them? So the, the question is kind of twofold. Yeah, so I think as optometrists, um, I know in my practice, we saw such an increase in patients with these issues coming and we were a vision therapy specific clinic. So that's what they were being referred for. So it is easy because you already know why they're there. But a lot of the time when you're in a more primary care setting, that may not come up in the conversation. So I think first of all, just bringing it up in the conversation, how are you doing with screens? Um, are you experiencing any eye strain? And you'll be surprised how many people say yes, but wouldn't necessarily offer that information without you asking. And that could be you asking when they're in the exam chair, or even when you're having your um, introduction patient paperwork, adding the CISS so that you can get a symptom survey and see where they're starting at. And then also remember that just because you don't specialize in vision therapy, there are simple ways that you can test for it. Just doing a near point of convergence can be really telling and repeating it as well to make sure you're getting that fatigue component. And then um, working together with your patient to come up with solutions, whether it be vision therapy, some glasses to help them find relief, you can make a big difference in these people's lives. And then for patients, I think just knowing if you are experiencing any eye strain, headaches, or other symptoms with screens, know that there are solutions and you don't have to just be like, I'm tired because it's an excess amount of hours. You don't have to suffer through that. There are solutions. And even just starting with the 2020-20 rule is a great starting point. Wonderful. I love those tips and recommendations. And thank you so much for joining us for this very important conversation this morning. And for everyone listening, if they want to contact you, learn more from you, where can they find and follow you? Um, so on Instagram, my handle is 2020 perspective. And then I do practice in both San Carlos and Santa Cruz, California. Wonderful. And I will link all of that in the show notes so our listeners can find you. But we really appreciate you coming on today. And for our listeners, we will talk to you next week. Thanks for listening. Follow us at Twin Forks Optometry on Facebook and Instagram. Join our private Facebook group, Vision is More Than 2020. Subscribe, download, and leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google Podcasts. Tune in next week to learn more about your vision.